All right, this morning we're going to dive into a story that has become very familiar to the church. Um, I've known this story since before I can remember. It's an unmistakable display of the grace of Jesus Christ. This story has meant a lot to me personally, and I guess that it's meant something to many, many of you as well. Every one of us has made mistakes in our lives. Some big ones and many little ones. We've all faced the pain of guilt and shame over those mistakes at some time or another. Every one of us is aware of the need that we have for grace. We need second chances. We need many second chances. We need to know that we're not defined by our mistakes We need to break free of the vicious cycle of mistakes that replay themselves over and over in our heads. We need grace. And we need to see what grace looks like in the lives of the people who lived when Jesus lived and walked this earth. And this story brings us into one such life, the the life of the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And before we look at the story this morning, there's something that we need to talk about related to this story. It's the presence of some unusual parentheses. John 7, verse 53, through John 8, verse 11, is a passage that is printed in parentheses. There's a reason for that, and I want to acknowledge that reason before we carry on. It shouldn't be just ignored. We need to talk about why that passage is in parentheses. There's been quite a bit of discussion about this passage over the ages. The reason for the discussion is that this passage did not appear here in John chapter 8 in the earliest of the Greek manuscripts of the book of John. It wasn't there. It wasn't included. The story was discovered and it was declared legitimate. It, wasn't, it just wasn't in a specific place. It was kind of floating around out there, and those responsible for putting the Bible together had to decide where it was going to go. And this spot, John 7, 53 to 8, 11, is not the only place that it's been inserted. For many of you, if you look down to the bottom of the page in your Bible where this story is found, you're going to see some possibilities for its placement in a footnote there. Some manuscripts omit this story altogether. They don't include it. Some place it after John 7.36. Some place it later in John after John 21.25. Others have even placed it in a different book altogether following Luke 21.38. And there are arguments for why it doesn't belong in John 8. Some believe that this story is an interruption to the flow of the book of John. They think that there's a clear train of thought from John 7.52 connecting it to John 8:12 and that this story breaks that train of thought. Others believe that John's introduction here of the title scribe was out of place. The term the scribes and Pharisees is found in the other gospels, but John uses it only once right here in this story. And so there's an assumption made that it doesn't fit there. It doesn't belong here. Something that John's mention of Jesus going to the Mount of Olives was out of place, since the other gospel accounts only have that happening during the week before his crucifixion. Nowhere else in Jesus' life. But John puts it here six months before that time. The story was not a part of the earliest manuscripts of the book of John. 
So does that mean that we have reason to doubt its validity? No, it does not. What's in question is simply the location of the story in the Bible narrative. And there was strong enough reason to believe that the story belongs where we see it, and so that's where we see it. Church, God's word, the Bible, has been given to us by God as a way of revealing himself to us and for the sake of equipping us for life and guiding us through this life and into all of eternity. I believe that he has protected what's been handed down to us. Am I 100% certain that this story is exactly where it was in John's book that he wrote in Ephesus? No, I'm not. Am I certain that this story is an account of something that actually happened as Jesus walked the earth? Yes, I am. Definitely. Jesus demonstrated his grace in the life of this woman, a woman who made mistakes and needed the grace of God, and I believe that this story is exactly where it should be. And so I will treat this passage as I've treated all the other passages in the book of John, I will treat it as fact. I will treat it as a message from God to us, to his church. I will treat it as a picture of who he is. I will treat it as it is, the word of God. So let's look at it now. Turn to John 7, verse 53. Really, it's the start of John 8. This is the day after the Feast of Booths. People would have been heading back to where they came from for the feast, But not everyone, because many of them lived there in Jerusalem. And after all the debate over who Jesus was, he's still there. And here's what happened. John 7, 53, it starts with this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. All right, let's talk a bit about the story, and then we'll consider what God might be showing us through this particular event in Jesus' life. After the Feast of Booths, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This is one of those statements that we just fly by when we read through the story of Jesus. Everyone went home, except Jesus. Why didn't Jesus go home? Because he didn't have a home. The word, God, became flesh and dwelled with his creation for a while, but while he was carrying out the mission his father had given him, he didn't even have a home. 
The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happened when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but here's one encouraging possibility. On the east side of the Mount of Olives was the home of some of Jesus' closest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it's possible that Jesus went to spend the night at their house. Maybe not. Maybe he spent the night in conversation with his father. Maybe he slept among the trees under the stars. We don't know. In the morning, Jesus returned to the temple. Pause when you see that as well. Jesus coming to the temple. Can you imagine him walking through the doors of this temple? Jesus came to the temple. His creation was there. His bride was there. The temple, the dwelling place of God, was being moved from that physical place to the hearts of his creation of those who would choose to follow him. Profound moment. Jesus comes to the temple. John writes that all the people were coming to him. In the temple, you could listen to the teaching of the rabbis. There in the temple, Jesus had been teaching. Throughout the festival, he'd been teaching. And his teaching had drawn all kinds of attention. Positive attention, negative attention. But that teaching had been captivating. And the crowds that came to hear him were significant. There were a lot of people that came there. And so like a rabbi does, Jesus sat down that morning. And he began to teach. But his teaching gets interrupted. The religious leaders had come up with a way to trap Jesus, so they carry out their plan. They bring a woman to Jesus and push her to where he is, and she's standing in front of him. The scribes, the experts at interpreting the law, and the Pharisees, we've seen them before, have come up with this plan. They push the woman to the center of the court where everyone could see and hear what was happening. They have a show to put on. And they mockingly address Jesus as teacher, and they begin their test. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery, they say. Seventh commandment forbids adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. This was an obvious one. This was not one of the small, obscure commandments that the religious leaders had added This one came directly from God through Moses and was etched in stone on one of the two tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain to present to God's people. And according to Leviticus 20 verse 10, the penalty for committing this sin was death. This was written in God's law. God would not tolerate adultery among his people. That's how seriously God viewed the marriage covenant then and now. And with the coming of Jesus and the gift of God's grace, you and I do not have to face the death penalty personally if we were to commit adultery. However, Jesus, rather than being too passive on the subject of adultery, actually makes it more severe. Jesus is the one who taught that adultery is not merely a matter of behavior. Jesus takes it into the realm of the heart and the mind and states that adultery can happen in the hearts and minds of his people. There are some who believe that this story was omitted from the earlier manuscripts because it was believed that Jesus was too lenient on adultery in the story. In fact, the opposite is true, and that theory has to be thrown out. So back to the story. The scribes and the Pharisees drag a woman before Jesus and claim to have caught her in the act of adultery. And let's not ignore the obvious. Where's the man? 
The law made it very clear that both the man and the woman who commit adultery are to face the same penalty for their sin. But the man's left out. He was unnecessary for their little trap. But he too was guilty of the adultery. Nothing about this was above board. It seemed like the scribes and the Pharisees had set the whole thing up. It was a terrible thing to do. Here's what they thought they were doing to Jesus. They thought Jesus would respond to their charges in either of two ways. And if he did respond either way, they thought they had him. If Jesus objected to their plan to have her stoned according to the law, they had him. He'd be guilty of going against the law of Moses. If Jesus agreed that she should be stoned and approved of them carrying out that punishment, he would be guilty of going against the law of Rome. Rome would not allow the Jews to execute the death penalty on somebody. It was their nation, their law, their government. The Jews did not have a right to carry out that kind of punishment. But their trap didn't have a chance. They were so foolish thinking that they could trap Jesus. But they failed to accept, they failed to acknowledge or recognize who he was. I can't stop thinking about Jesus' response to their accusations. I can't think of a better way to handle what they were trying to do. Here's Jesus faced with a disturbing scenario. There's the woman. We can't argue whether or not she was guilty. There's no reason to argue that. Jesus knew. He didn't argue it. Later, he would talk to her about her sin, about her guilt. Jesus' compassion is being tested here unintentionally. What does he do with a guilty woman who's being humiliated in front of a temple full of people? How does he still acknowledge, as he always did, that she is his creation, that she's a person created in his image? How does he demonstrate his love for her in the midst of conditions like this? There wasn't a lot he could do, but he did something. And when all the eyes in the temple were on that woman, Jesus bent down and drew in the sand, drawing their attention to himself. Jesus compassionately took the attention off her and onto himself. And that's a great response in itself. The other part of this response that I cheer for is the simple way in which Jesus just disregards their accusations and their childish test. He bends down, he starts writing in the sand. No arguing or defending himself, no yelling, no mudslinging, just a passive disregard for what they're saying. And the Bible does not tell us what Jesus was writing. There's been plenty of speculation about that. Was he writing the names of the accusers? Maybe he was listing their sins. Maybe he was writing the words he was about to say. It doesn't matter. Jesus simply took the attention off the woman, disregarded the accusers, and inserted a pause. The scribes and Pharisees pushed him. They were impatient. They were in a hurry to spring the trap that they'd set. But in his time, Jesus stood up and he addressed them. And looking back, they probably wished that he had never stood back up. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He didn't deny the woman's guilt. 
He used the law to expose the sins of the accusers. He didn't break the Roman law. He shifted the authority back to the scribes and Pharisees by telling them to throw the first stone if. And remarkably, he spared the woman from being executed for her sin. Jesus didn't make light of the sin of any one of them, but he also didn't allow the law to have the final say. He wouldn't ignore the laws that God had created. He never has. He didn't do away with the law. He fulfilled it, and we get to see him doing that here. God would have the final say in how the law was to be applied. God was making a statement through Jesus about how he was going to fulfill that law. Not through people judging people. Not through the religious leaders accusing and carrying out penalties for sin. He would do it through Jesus. Not one of us is free of sin. We are all guilty, church, of breaking God's law. Therefore, we will not stand in judgment against each other. God alone will judge. And he has. And the penalty for all of our sin has been paid by Jesus Christ. The scribes and the Pharisees were not fit to judge the woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. You and I are not worthy to judge her for her sin. Or to judge each other. Jesus saw this. So look at what he did. He removed the judges. And they left one by one. And the woman was left face to face with the only one who could judge her. It was just her and Jesus. This was both compassionate and much more intense than it was before then. Human accusers, gone. Ultimate judge right there in front of her. So why did they leave beginning with the older ones? We're not sure. We're not told. Maybe the older ones were the first to realize that they had lost this test. Maybe they were more aware of their sin. That seems to happen with age. We see it more in our lives. Maybe they had more sin to recall when Jesus made his statement about who could throw the first stone. The result was an encounter between the woman and Jesus. He asked her if anyone was left to condemn her. She said no. And he let her know that he wasn't going to either. He called her woman. Do you remember hearing that title earlier in the the book of John? Jesus had used it when he addressed his mother at the wedding in Cana. He used it to address the Samaritan woman at the well. He would use it to address Mary Magdalene. It was a polite and respectful title. There was no hate. There was no judgment. There was compassion. But did Jesus let her off the hook? No, he did not. He made it clear that her sin could not continue. He made it clear to all of us that the forgiveness Jesus offers comes with a plan for transformation. No more sin. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6 that we can't take God's grace for granted and just keep sinning so that we see more of God's grace. God's expectation is that sin's power in our lives diminishes as we invite Jesus' lordship in every area. 
Let's take this whole story to heart, not just the final statement of Jesus. What happened here? And what if it were us? And maybe it is us. We've made mistakes. Some of them big ones. For the woman in the story, maybe her longing for love and acceptance drove her to make a shameful choice or more than one choice. Maybe yours has as well. Maybe your drive to feel significance has pushed you to compromise all that you know about humility and integrity just for the sake of gaining the acceptance and approval of someone else. Maybe you've been deceitful about who you really are. Maybe you've settled for something less than what God has for you just to hear and feel the affection of someone else. Maybe your fear of rejection and loneliness has driven you to a lack of trust in yourself and others denying you the life that God wants you to have. Maybe you've cheated, maybe you've stolen, coveted, lusted, maybe you've slandered others, maybe you've lied and judged. Whatever it is, knowing that it's more than just one thing for all of us, I want to invite you to bring it to Jesus right now. Bring it to him. Enter the story. You've been exposed. Remember this first. God already knows. He was there when you did it. Jesus already knew what the woman had done. He knows what you've done. He knows what I've done. Now it's you Jesus and your sin, but in our story, there were others. There are usually others in my story. There probably are in yours. They're the accusers, and the primary accuser is Satan. He's notorious for accusing God's children. You know you weren't supposed to do it. God's law has made that clear for you, and there stands the accuser pointing fingers at you. There's shame, there's guilt, there's regret. And what Jesus does for us first when we bring our sin to him is this. He removes our accusers. Jesus invites us into a one-on-one encounter with him. No one else is invited or welcome in that encounter. It's just me and him. It's just you and Jesus. And that's it. And as we shake in fear standing before Jesus, he calms that fear. He calms it because of who he is and what he does. He loves unconditionally and that love pushes away the fear that we have. In righteous compassion, Jesus has limited the encounter to us and him. And he goes to work exchanging our guilt and shame for his grace Never minimizing what we've done. Never. Because if he did, we'd miss something incredible. When Jesus refuses to minimize our sin, it should make us look on him with an ever-increasing love. Our sin is very serious. Our sinful condition can only be dealt with through death. And it should be our death. Sin deserves death. But for every one of our sins, for our sinful condition, rather than overlook that sin, Jesus reminds him that he took the punishment. He paid the price for our sin. 
And from there, having dealt with that sin, he pours out grace. And it looks like forgiveness. It expresses itself in in providing a clean slate, a clear conscience, a second chance. And we walk away not just knowing that we have to change, we want to change. Having encountered the righteousness and mercy of Jesus, who has shown compassion for us and has forgiven us, we ought to walk away with a new level of confidence in the way that we approach him, in the way that we come to Jesus. Church, he invites us to come. He welcomes us. Don't cower in fear because of what you've done. Come, come knowing that Jesus is ready to do away with your accusers. Come knowing that Jesus has already paid for your mistakes. Come knowing that he will forgive. Come knowing that Jesus will not condemn. Come knowing that you can and will change. Come knowing that Jesus has been waiting for you. and He welcomes you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So come. There's one more thing that I want to point out about this interaction between Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery. As he converses with her, when he stands up and everyone's gone, He says, where are your accusers? Is there no one left here to condemn you? And she says, no one. But there's another word there. No one, Lord. And this woman in that moment acknowledges the fact that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is is master, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that her own identity in front of him, face to face with Jesus, her response out of her identity has to be that. She has to identify him as Lord. She has to address him as Lord. Not just friend, not just Jesus, she says, Lord. And Jesus knew that in the depth of her being, she acknowledged him as Lord. He was her master. And when we come to Jesus with our sin, and we can expect that he'll remove our accusers, and it's just us, and we can expect that he will forgive, and we can expect that he will pour out grace on us, What I think he expects is that we will identify him as Lord. We're his. We're his servants. We are subjects in his kingdom. That's where we stand. That's who he is. He has all the power to judge us. And we do not come before him flippantly going, oh good, I just got to go through the steps and he's going to give me grace again and I can forget about what happened. She called him Lord. When he met her there, 
as her Lord. This morning we get to share communion again as a church family and I believe that this story of the woman caught in adultery gives us such a clear picture of why we celebrate communion. And honestly, I want the grace without the suffering. I want Jesus' compassion and mercy. I want the forgiveness. I want the grace. But I know that there's no way I can experience that grace without a deep realization of the fact that Jesus had to die so that he could pour out his grace on us so that our encounter with him looks very different than the encounter of a guilty person standing before a judge awaiting their sentence. He had to deal with the sentence and he did He made grace possible on the cross. And that's what we come to remember this morning. Death was necessary. The law wasn't off. It wasn't misquoted. Sin results in death. And as we stand before Jesus with our sin exposed the accusers are taken out of the picture the death penalty is dealt with by Jesus and we stand forgiven ready to receive his grace and be transformed more and more into his likeness I don't know about you, but I want that. I want to come to Jesus with my sin in light of all that and allow him to do that for me. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't pour out his grace on me without the cross. So when we come this morning to the table, we come remembering the fact that his body was given up for us, that he took that death penalty on himself, that the wrath of God was poured out on his son. And we take the cup, remembering that his blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, flowed down that cross, flowed down his back, his front, from his forehead, from all over as he bled. And that Precious blood washes you and me clean so that we can stand before him and receive his grace and be transformed into his likeness, free. And invite the elders to come up now and prepare to serve and the worship team as well to come and Lead us into this time of worship. And this is an act of worship. We come before God to participate in the elements as an act of worship. As an act of gratitude. As an act of remembrance and and celebration of something horrible that happened. But that horrible thing had to happen to open up the channel of God's grace. So it could be poured out on you and me. Are you thankful for that? Let's thank him for that in prayer before we come to the table.
Father, I thank you for the invitation to come before Jesus. Not against our wishes, not being dragged and placed before him, but to come with confidence before the throne. Knowing that you already know what we've done. Yeah, you still let us come. You still invite us. You still welcome us to come with our sin. Sin that is exposed before you. You invite us to come with all of those voices of accusation ringing in our ears. promise to touch our ears silence those stupid judgmental voices including our own as we look around and realize that you've removed the accusers We acknowledge before you that you are Lord. We acknowledge the fact that you had to die. That you came as the Messiah. That you are God's Son. That you are the Savior. The sacrifice. The atonement for our sin. And in that beautiful freedom... We allow you to pour your grace over us. God, thank you for that grace. We need that second chance. We need that clean slate. We need that clear conscience. We need that new start to become new people. Make us more and more like your son. Thank you for this story. Thank you for bringing it to us. Putting it before us right here, right now. We can see how much we needed this. As we come now, meet us here at the table. Meet us in the elements. Meet us in the remembrance of the fact that your body was given up for our sake. You stood in our place and took our punishment on yourself. Remind us of the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Opening the floodgates of grace to be poured out on us. We love you. We remember your son with gratitude and humility. We come now to celebrate in Jesus' name, in the name of our Savior.